All right. For the rest of us, we are going to finish our sermon series on all the short books today. So we're finishing up our look at the book of Jude. And it's been an incredible privilege, by the way, this summer for me to preach the word of God to you. And one of the interesting things that I found, I don't know if you found it as well, is I found myself amazed at how much God packs into such little books. Like, I shouldn't be surprised. I find, and this is something I always tell people, that the hardest time you'll ever have to read through the Bible is the first time. After that, what you'll find is the more you read, the more you'll discover. And that continues for the rest of your life. You'll ask people in their 80s who read through the Bible on a yearly basis or more, and they'll tell you they're still discovering more amazing treasures from God's Word. And so it shouldn't surprise me, but I found like 2 John, 3 John, they're paragraphs. How much could God have in those? And it turns out as I started to study and to discover what God has there, it was, I almost felt like, oh man, this is almost too much for one sermon. And now we get to Jude, and I feel the same. We've taken three sermons to get through the whole of the book of Jude, and it fits on one paper, right? And yet I feel like I could have spent more time in each sermon and deliver to you. Um, but obviously we're going to finish up today, and I do think that'll be enough time, but but there's more to discover each time as we dive in, and I've enjoyed seeing that. But as a reminder, since we're finishing up Jude, we began the book of Jude, and Jude has a very um, systematic way of presenting his letter. He begins by explaining why he's writing. And basically why he's writing is he's writing because he's concerned that there are those in the church who abuse the grace of God as a license to pursue their own sins, and they're teaching others to do the same thing. He says this is a threat to the gospel, and he's urging them to contend for the faith, to fight off this error of thinking, because if this is allowed to be believed by members of the church, it, it, it presents the gospel as powerless. The, the power of the gospel is that it frees you from sin. So why would you enter slavery again willingly? And so he presents that. That's the reason he writes the book. Then all of, la uh, all of last sermon was about Jude explaining from the Old Testament and from stories they know why this is bad. And so he spent all of that section talking about how Jesus is our Lord and Master. And so those who abuse the gift of grace as a license to sin are basically people who refuse the authority of Jesus. And the best that they have to hope for is a purposeless, unfulfilling, unsatisfying life that ends in the judgment of their Lord and Master Jesus. So a very cheerful, uplifting, encouraging sermon, right? Very encouraging. Um, but it, it actually was, if we dig into it more, but, but Jude is going to end it with the so what part, all right? So he talked about, okay, what's the problem? He explained from the scripture and from other stories as examples why it's a problem. But now he gets to the so what. He said, contend for the faith. This week it's about, okay, now how do we practically do that? And so that's what we're going to look in today. What does Jude have to say about, okay, now that I've explained to you this truth and these treasures of God, what do we actually do with that? And so we're going to look at that together today. So I want to invite you to stand with me uh, as we read from the Word of God. And we're going to be in the book of Jude. We're going to start with verse 17. So go ahead and put your finger down on verse 17. We're going to work our way through the rest of the book today. So 
Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, the void of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, I pray that as we study your word from the book of Jude together, that you would just reveal to us how you want us to grow as your children, that you would reaffirm that we are beloved by you. And out of that assurance of your heart towards us, that that we would stand firm in the gospel, that we would stand firm and contend for the faith, and that we would have the courage to snatch others out of sin and out of fire, and yet avoiding the sin ourselves. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when we look at this Jude, before we really dive in together, I want to point out a couple of interesting things here. So um, if you look at with me again at verse 17 that we just read together, Jude begins kind of the so what section in this way. He says, but you, right? So all of this buildup, he's talking about these false teachers who use the grace of God as a license to sin and teach others to do the same. And he, he's explaining this in detail, and now he gets to so what? But you, in other words, what are we supposed to do differently? And in fact, this whole section is a contrast. If you look, the, the people he is writing against are, he, he describes in verse 19, those who cause divisions, right? One thing. They are worldly people, second thing, and they're devoid of the Spirit. And then again in verse 20, you have this repetition of, but you, right? He's getting our attention by this repetition. In other words, this is what they are like, but you do something differently. And notice the contrast. As opposed to those who cause division, you are to build yourselves up. As opposed to those who are worldly, you build yourself up in your most holy faith. And as opposed to those who are devoid of the Spirit, you are to pray in the Holy Spirit. There's a deliberate contrast between those who are the, those Judas writing against, those who use the grace of God as a license to sin, and you. And who is you? Well, that's the other interesting repetition that Jude does here. But you, and then you keep reading in the line, it says, Beloved, in verse 17. And in verse 20, it says, but you, and what does it say again right after the but you? Beloved, right? In other words, Jude is going all the way back to the beginning. This book began by writing to a specific audience, and that specific audience we identified are those who are called by God, beloved by God, and kept for Jesus. This is our identity, and it is to, 
this identity that we are to hold on to as we do what Jude is telling us to do. It's the basis, right? Uh, but it's also just a good pastoral thing. Jude just told them some very, very difficult things. Remember, he wanted to write to them about their common salvation, right? Uh, he wanted to write this encouraging letter about this faith that we share, right? Encouraging and uplifting, but he was so concerned by this false teaching in the church that out of his concern and love for this church, he wrote something different, a letter of warning. It is out of that love that he wrote this hard letter. It reminds me of Paul in one of his letters. He says, I didn't want to cause you pain. I didn't want to cause you sorrow, but I am thankful because it was a godly sorrow. In other words, sometimes loving someone means speaking hard things to them. And that's something that we so often avoid. Think about how painful it is to sell someone you love something difficult and painful. Yet it, it is out of that love that we do it. There is a way to tell someone difficult things and be a jerk about it, right? That is not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is saying in love we do this thing. In other words, our love for them overwhelms our love of being liked by them. Let me say that again. Our love for them overcomes our love of how they view us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, why do we not tell people hard things if we know that if they continue down that line, if they continue in their sin, it only leads to their destruction? Why do we not warn them? Why do we not tell them? It's because if we're honest with ourselves, we love how they view us more than we actually love them. Because if we love them, we would be okay with them not liking us for a moment if it brings their healing and their growth and their health and their flourishing. Would we not? We know that temporarily they're going to be caused pain, but in the long run, it's for their good. We would be willing to do it, even if that means sacrificing their opinion. Uh, it's actually interesting. Just in Sunday school today, one of the students said something insightful about what did Paul have to give up in order to pursue Jesus? And they said that actually Paul had to give up people viewing him as a righteous man in order to actually become righteous, which is true, right? But when we don't tell our friends and those we love difficult things, it is often because we care and love their opinion of us more than we actually love them. And so Jude, as a good pastor who loves this church, is telling this church a very hard and painful lesson. But after he does so, he reassures them. In other words, these are the people you are to avoid, but he's not writing primarily to the false teachers. He's prim writing primarily to the church. And so he tells them something difficult in order to spare them long-term pain and suffering. But then he reassures them and says, but you are beloved. Reminding them of their identity as those who are called, those who are beloved, and those who are kept. In other words, I have, I have confidence of better things for you. I tell you this hard thing because I love you and it's for your good, but I have confidence that you are not of those false teachers. So you can have a confidence, right? And then the... Uh, and so that is all that leads up into it. So then what does he tell them to do? So let's look together at verse uh, 20. But you, beloved, 
building yourselves up. Now, as, as, a, as I was studying this, oftentimes when I was reading Jude, I kind of read it as an individual. In other words, okay, so this is what we're not supposed to be like, but you, as a new Josh, individually, do this instead. But as I was reading it, and it, as I realized that what is one of the marks of this false teaching? They cause divisions. So in contrast to that, what is the mark of us as Christians? We build each other up. In other words, Jude's instructions aren't just to you as an individual. They are to us as a church. Right? One of the problems of these false teachers is they separate those in the church and cause contention and divisions. So what do we do instead? We build each other up. But I want to make a note of something. Jude is not calling for unity with compromise. Because one way of gaining unity is to say, you know what? They just believe something different. They just read the Bible different. They, they read the Bible and they see that they have grace to pursue their sins, right? So um, I disagree with them, but I don't want to cause division. So we're just going to disagree for now and then let God fix the problem in heaven. But Jude isn't saying he wants a false unity. In fact, he very deliberately calls out these false teachers, and he says, anyways, to build each other up. Because that, a lot of times, is the temptation. We see that these false teachers are scoffers. This idea that with hate and vitriol and sarcasm, they tear down those who have what nowadays you would call a puritanical morality. Right? This idea that God actually means what he says in the Bible, and we are actually to obey him because he's our God, right? The, the temptation is to say, well, they still profess the name of Jesus, then we're on the same side, even though they don't hold to the teachings of Jesus and the, the morality of Jesus and the commands of Jesus. We should pursue unity. No, that's not what Judah's saying here. He's saying pursue unity, but not a false unity that makes allowance for sins. Right? This would undermine the very teaching and power of the gospel. So he says to build each other up. How do you do that? What does it mean to build each other up? And this is actually an image that is all throughout the New Testament. The church is described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the image we're going to come back to in a little bit. But, but imagine this building, right? The foundation of that building is Jesus, and everything you build up afterwards is, is the church, the individual members coming together to house the Holy Spirit, right? It's one of those beautiful images that the Bible repeats again and again, Old Testament and New Testament, right? The church is the fulfillment of the temple of God because in us, we bring the presence of God to the world, his Holy Spirit within us. And so the Bible warns very sharply to those who would tear down the church. In other words, those who cause division. Imagine this building, and as you're building it up, someone else is constantly working and ripping the nails out where you just put them in and taking boards down where you just put them up. That's frustrating, right? And yet that's the description of these false teachers here. They're causing divisions. They are tearing down. And the Bible gives sharp warnings against those who would cause divisions within the church. The bond of love that we have because of God's love for us. If any of us would tear that down, God gives sharp warning, right? This is his temple. You don't just get to come and spray graffiti over it and tear down boards and cause destruction. 
This is God's home, right? And so you build each other up. How do we do that? Well, as we keep reading, I think you're going to find two primary ways. One is to encourage one another, and another is to disciple one another. And why do I say that? Because if we keep reading that line in verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in what? Well, it says here, in your most holy faith. Now, we saw already at the beginning of Jude that what is this faith that we have? Well, what we have is a common faith, a common salvation, one that has been handed down from the beginning. Right? That's the language that he uses at the beginning of his book, that it is a faith once for all handed down. How is the faith handed down? Well, we have the whole of the Bible to explain that to us, but essentially it's discipleship. In other words, we have been called in the Great Commission to go and make disciples, teaching them all that Jesus taught us. And so how is the faith passed down? It's passed down from person to person, from someone who has received this great and holy faith. We then pass it on to others, who then pass it on to others, who then pass it on to others. And we are all beneficiaries of someone who has passed down their faith to us. And they had been passed on their faith from someone else. The way that God grows his church is through God's people. That's his plan A, and God never makes plan Bs. Isn't that amazing, by the way? God could have passed down the faith directly to each of us, but he chose not to just redeem the relationship of human beings to God, but human beings to each other. And he makes the way we receive our faith dependent upon other fallen human beings. He redeems our fallenness and our sin and makes it into this beautiful thing where we pass on the most holy treasure we have to others who pass it on to others. We do not pass on what we haven't first received, but when we receive it, we pass it on. That's the picture of the scripture. That's how we build each other up is we pass on what we have first learned. That's discipleship, right? And it says, your most holy faith. Remember, this is that contrast to worldliness, that if you are following the teachings of Scripture and passing those on, you will live a holy life, a set-apart life, one that acknowledges Jesus as your Lord and Master and therefore submit to him in obedience. We pass on the truth of the Scripture, but also the way of life of the Scripture. In other words, um, one of the most... Uh, one of the statements that stuck with me from church history was that oftentimes these early Christians, the way they talked about knowing the Bible was actually inseparable from obeying the Bible. In their minds, if someone said they, they knew what the scripture said, but they weren't actually living it out, then they didn't know what the scripture says. Those are two inseparable things. And that's often the way the Bible communicates knowledge is know and do. They're inseparable. In other words, our way of life, if you know and understand the scripture, you live out the scripture. You can't separate those two things. You can't have your head full of knowledge of scripture and not obey it. Not if you actually, truly understand it, right? And that's what we're passing on. We're passing on knowledge of scripture, which leads to a way of life of scripture, right? And the more you know, the more you do. 
In other words, sometimes in our day and age, we have this idea of like, oh, you don't want to just study theology or doctrine. And theology is just knowledge of God. Doctrine is just the foundational beliefs of Christianity, right? Because you just fill up your head, but it won't change your heart. All right, that's bizarre, though, because the Bible talks about more knowledge changes your heart. More knowledge of God leads to a heart and a life change. The Bible doesn't separate those. Why are we separating them? In other words, our goal as Christians is to grow in our knowledge of God. And that doesn't just mean the head. That means our heart grows in knowledge of God and our life shows the knowledge of God. We shouldn't separate those two things. And so we pass on, we build each other up in the most holy faith as we study the scripture deeply and are transformed by it and then pass on our knowledge to someone else and they are transformed by it. That's what the Christian life is about. And when we do that, we avoid the false teaching of heretics, this idea that somehow God's grace excuses us to pursue our sin further to our own destruction. No, our very heart and mind and life are changed as we disciple each other. And not just disciple, as Christians, we are to be known as people of the word. Our lives should be so saturated with the scripture that people, when they read the Bible for the first time, they should be like, why does this sound familiar? Oh, it's because this sounds exactly what so-and-so was telling me and living out in their own life. That's how saturated our lives should be in the scripture. So we, as Christians, should be people of the word and keep reading further. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, and what else? What else should we be? People of the word and people of prayer. It says praying in the Holy Spirit. So what I, the, the statement I had to summarize, to summarize this teaching of Scripture is that build each other up in the true faith, right? And pray as true Christians. I'm emphasizing the true because when you pass on the most holy faith, it is a true faith, one that is both knowledge and life change, one that doesn't separate the true, the two things. That's a lie. That's self-deception. If you believe you understand the scripture but don't live it out, you're lying to yourself. If you believe you're living it out but don't actually know the scripture, don't really read it, you're once again lying to yourself. So build yourself up in the true faith as you pray, as true Christians. But why do I say true Christians? Well, because the contrast, remember, those devoid of the Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. You may have identified yourself in the church, but the gift of every Christian is the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit is working in you. You are not saved by a changed life, but if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit and your life can't help but be changed. Why? Because God is not so weak that he can't change even the most hardened sinner. Am I right? How many of you know that to be true in your own lives? Absolutely. Right? If you have the Holy Spirit, you'll be changed and you'll look at your life and go, how? How did I change like that? I've tried so long on my own efforts to change and nothing happened, but the Holy Spirit in you produces this miracle. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, you are praying as a true Christian. But what does praying in the Holy Spirit mean? I want to address this because there's a teaching currently where people read, pray in the Spirit, and they have some weird idea that this means praying in some sort of heavenly tongue, 
Like to pray in the spirit means to speak this language that is not earthly or human. If you have heard of that, then that's what I'm addressing. If you haven't, I just want to address it before you hear about it. But that's not what it's talking about here. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? Well, if you're a Christian, then every single prayer that you pray is in the spirit. Why? Well, because the Bible describes prayer in this way. When Christians pray, Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, right? His disciples asked him to pray. He said, well, begin this way, our Father. All Christians pray whenever we pray to the Father. And when we pray, we pray in Jesus. The reason we can come to the very throne of God is because we have been united to Jesus. Sinful human beings in the presence of an all-holy God would be completely unmade. But we have been made holy because of our union with Jesus. So every Christian, when they pray, pray to the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. The Spirit's role in prayer is described as taking our prayers to the Father. And the amazing thing is, it actually says he interprets our prayers for us. So how many of you, as you're praying, like, this is, I just cannot think of the words to pray. Like, you just feel so inept forming words, and you, you hear other pr people pray these grand prayers, and you're like, I just can't speak like that. I don't even can't even express myself to other people, much less to a holy God. Well, the beautiful thing is that the Holy Spirit does that for you. You just pray, and the Holy Spirit takes what's in your heart and brings them to the Father and interprets it for us. So every Christian, when we pray, the whole of the Trinity of God is working in our prayers. Isn't that amazing? We pray to the Father, and we can pray to the Father because we are in Jesus. And we can pray because we pray through the Holy Spirit. And so when the Christian prays, they pray within the whole of the Godhead. All three persons of the Trinity are working for us in that prayer. Isn't that an amazing thing? The Bible treats prayer as in this incredible miracle. And when we understand that miracle more fully, we realize what power and what gift we have in it. And so we become people of the word and people of prayer. But I said I'd come back to this image of the temple because I wanted to remind you of something Jesus said. So in Jesus' lifetime, the one story where Jesus is flipping tables and making people mad, I'm sure you're all aware of us, right? Because everyone... When we get angry, we're like, well, Jesus was angry too that one time, right? And we, we kind of excuse it. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, no one's admitting it, but I think we've all been there. We know this story. Well, what did Jesus say was the reason for his anger? Because his, his father's house should be known as a house of prayer. Now, I want you to think about this image for a second. The temple of God was where God's presence was with humankind. The amazing thing about the new covenant is, where God's presence was in one geographical location that people had to come to. The beautiful thing is that because Jesus and his sacrifice, he remade the temple. There's no longer one geographical place. Instead, he says that God will dwell with man, and he sends his spirit to his church, and his church is the new Holy Spirit. So instead of man coming to God in one place, God's spirit is with God's people who go into all the nations, bringing God's spirit to mankind. That's a beautiful image of this new covenant. And what's interesting is that Jesus is right at the turn. The days of the temple being a geographical place are numbered when he says that. And so I can't help but see this image of the New Testament where 
God's house is to be a house of prayer. That is just as true in the new covenant. God's house now should be a house of prayer. But what does that mean when it's not one geographical place? It means that God's people, who within God's people dwell God's spirit, should be known as a people of prayer. That's who we are as Christians. We are people of the word, and we are people of prayer. Why? Because we see what a great privilege and power it is that when we pray, we have the whole of the Trinity working in us in that prayer. How can we not be people of prayer when we recognize that? And so when you build each other up in the word, through discipleship, and in prayer for one another, right? Prayer is probably the greatest gift that we can offer each other, right? How many of you have been moved to prayer for your brothers and sisters, that you look at their life, move to pray for their maturity, move to pray for their freedom from sin that is entangling them, move to pray that they can see their brothers and sisters and mothers and children come to know Jesus, right? How many have been moved to pray for each other? And yet the description of these Christians, of the beloved ones, is that they should pray in the Holy Spirit. And then through praying in the Holy Spirit, that is how we build each other up. We build each other up when we disciple each other in the word and when we pray for one another. And so build each other up in the true faith as true Christians. And next is staying in the true gospel. Continue reading with me in verse 21. It says this, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that's a strange statement if you think about it. On the surface, you might be tempted to think, okay, we have to keep ourselves being loved by God, right? Some people may read that and go, okay, we have to try really hard to stay in God's love, right? But that causes a problem with the rest of the book of Jude. And of course, with our, with our view and belief of salvation, right? It's not us who saves ourselves. We don't hold ourselves in the love of God. God holds us. And in fact, we... It, we know that that's not just us forcing a belief onto Jude. Jude himself says it when it says that he, God himself keeps us in Jesus. And if we keep reading down, we read in verse 24, Now to him, talking about God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. In other words, who is doing the keeping? Who is presenting you blameless? Who is doing the work of perfecting you? It's not you, it is God. It is God who keeps you. So then this phrase, to stay in the love of God, to keep yourselves in the love of God, cannot mean keep yourselves in salvation. It cannot mean that you can lose your salvation. That is not what it's talking about here. So what is it talking about? Well, through the rest of the book, I think what you're seeing is that Together, we are to build our whole lives on the foundation of the gospel. In other words, everything we do as Christians is influenced because of the gospel. When we share the word with each other and disciple each other, when we pray for each other, we're not doing that because of a forced sense of obligation, because we're scared that if we don't do it, then we're going to lose our salvation, then we're going to lose the love of God. No, you're doing it because the love of God for you. And his love is so overwhelming, the only reaction then is to, out of gratitude, do these things, right? 
the reason that we as Christians obey God is not out of fear. There was a time of fear, right? The fear of God was important to lead us to repentance. But as Christians, the love of God overcomes all fear. And so as Christians, we live a life out of love and freedom. Keep yourselves in the gospel means to keep yourself in the knowledge of the gospel. Remind each other of the love of God for you. Which goes back to what I was saying in the first sermon, right? As Christians, we don't just live holy but miserable lives. It should be marked by joy. This is how it's marked by joy. Because we're not doing it out of some forced sense of duty. We're obeying God out of gratitude. That transforms everything. You may look and say, the actions are the same. Even if that were true, the motivation and the heart behind it is important. As Christians, we obey God out of love. And so what can we do as Christians? What is the most kind thing we can do for other Christians? It is to remind them of the gospel. Remind them of God's great love for them. When I remind you of how great a love God has for you, that he sent his own son to die for you, and he raised them again so that you can have a new life, that's one of the kindest gifts I can give you. Yes, teach all of the Bible, but especially teach the gospel. Yes, pass on all of Scripture, but especially pass on the gospel. Remind each other constantly of the God's great love for each other, and by doing so, you keep yourselves in the love of God. Right? And when you do that, you can avoid this error. The idea that you can continue sinning because of the grace of God won't be appealing to you. Why would you want to go do that when God's great love for you he rescued you from sin. Why would you want to go back to it? And so by reminding each other of the gospel, by preaching it to yourselves and to each other on a moment-by-moment basis, we have to keep each other in the love of God and avoid that error. But then he goes on. He says, he says um, in verse 21, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In other words, build each other up in true faith as you pray as true Christians, staying in the true Gospels with true hope. In other words, we are not encouraging each other and building each other up in vain. We as Christians can be confident of many things, but one of the things we can be confident is, is that we will be saved. Yes, in this life, as much as we encourage each other and build each other up, we will still sin because we're fallen human beings, although saved from that sin, but we've not yet experienced the fullness of that salvation yet. But we can rest in this, that God, who began a good work in you, will complete it. That was one of the most relieving scriptures for me, by the way. I don't know if any of you who have ever wrestled with your own sin for a long time and feel so completely weak at killing sin in your own life, that's one of the most reassuring verses I've ever read, is the promise that as much as you may be struggling now, you can rest assured that God will complete the work, that you will not always struggle with sin, that you will be perfected. But why can we be confident of that? Well, I want to jump down to verse 24 and read that again to you says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I want you to notice that. With great 
joy. God is not presenting me blameless. Jesus is not presenting me blameless and perfect before his Father because he has to. He's not presenting you before the Father begrudgingly. He's doing it with great joy. It is God's delight to see you free from sin. It is God's delight to see you joyfully enjoying his creation, how you were designed to enjoy it. It is God's joy and happiness that you be free from guilt and shame and that you be perfected in his sight. We can be confident that the God who can do anything, not only will, but wants to perfect you. And that distinction is important. We serve a father who is not angry about being our father, but delights to be our father. We serve a God who is saving us from sin, not begrudgingly, but out of joy. I know I keep repeating that, but I'll keep repeating it until it sinks in past your ears into your heart and transforms you because that truth is the central truth of the gospel. And it's amazing. God loved you so much, loved you, delighted in you, that he sent his son to die for you and he rose his son again so that you could have a new life. That is the truth that we hold firm to. And so what does that mean for us, right? If God delights to save us from sin, then he will complete that work. Well, one, it means we can, can kind of rest. I mean, there are certain personalities that are so anxious and frantic in their approach to killing sin in their life. By the way, work hard to kill sin in your life. That's a good thing. But sometimes we're so anxious about it and we examine every little thing we're doing. We're always like, oh, was that good? Was that not? Was it? Rest. God is the one doing the work. He will continue to do that work. That doesn't mean you don't work hard, but it does mean you can stop being so anxious and worried about it all the time. He will present you blameless. So now what, right? So Jude gives all of this to us as Christians, right? So he encourages us to build each other up in the true faith, in other words, with the scripture, and in uh, by praying for each other as true Christians in the spirit, right? And to stay in the true gospel, to preach it to ourselves and to each other, and that we can do that with this true hope. But now what about those who are going into sin? How should we address that? And this is what he has to say. Uh, if we look at verse 22, he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Look at the interesting word choice. In this life, where we cannot yet see God, except in God's people, right? We are the body of Jesus. We can visibly see that. But we cannot see God. We cannot see him face to face. Doubt will still come, right? Doubt still happens. And so how do you treat those who genuinely doubt? They want to believe, but they just struggle with it. Well, it says to treat them with mercy. We aren't to berate them or beat them up over their doubts or tell them that you just need to stop doubting and believe already, right? And in fact, we know that already. We should at least because we saw how Jesus treated it. We saw a father come to him and he said, if you can heal my son, and Jesus goes, if, if. And so the father goes, I believe, help 
my unbelief. And I think that's all of us in our prayers most of the time. I believe God, but help me because I don't fully believe yet. And if God is merciful to us in our doubting, then we need to give mercy to those who doubt and those who struggle. It's not to berate them or build them up. It is to instead build them up with the word, to pray for them in the spirit, to encourage them and to have mercy with them. What does it say after that? What about those who are entering into sin? Well, in verse 23, it says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That word snatching implies a sense of urgency and a sense of not just urgency, but forcefulness to it, right? In other words, this person in their sin is entering a very, very dangerous thing. You don't just wait and allow them to continue down this dangerous path with all the destruction that it's going to cause to them. With urgency and with forcefulness, we try to snatch them out of the fire that they're entering into. Some of the hardest teachings of Scripture is when the Bible talks about discipline, church discipline. But one thing we got to understand is that when God tells us to discipline those in the church who are entering unrepentedly into sin, that is an act of love. It is an act of love for others in the church who, as Judas addressing, might be tempted to fall into that sin as an example. It's an act of love also to the one you're bringing discipline to. We know that this sin caused such destruction and harm in their life that if we truly love them, we don't want this for them. So we hope maybe the serious commands that the Bible gives about sin, we can do those out of a hope and a desire that they will recognize for themselves. They'll stop deceiving themselves, telling themselves it's not so bad, that it's fine, that God's grace covers over sin. And they might be snatched out of their self-deception and realize what, what destruction they're bringing upon themselves. It is an act of love. Right? So for us, what does that mean? It means when we see our brothers continuing down a path of sin, we don't just wait and see it out. We directly address them. And by the way, address them, right? Not talk about them to others as the guise of a prayer request. No, we address the person that is sinning. And we do it urgently. We command them, we, we give them the seriousness of the scripture about it, right? And yes, we do so with mercy. It is still an act of love, right? And we do so with patience. The Bible's direction on church discipline, when we read the scriptures about throw them out of the church as if that was like all there is to church discipline, but that's after a long process. First, you go to them as an individual. You give them time. If they still don't listen to you, they still don't repent. Then you go to them with someone else. And if then they still don't listen to you, still don't repent, then you go as the whole church and you give them another chance. But then if they still don't listen to you, well, then as a whole church, you have to throw them out of the church, not as an act of hate or anger, but as an act of love that they might be shocked out of their self-perception. This is a slow and patient process with mercy and love towards that person. Right? But it is forceful. Why? Because the sin is serious. And it can cause incredible pain and harm to them and to the rest of the church if it's not treated seriously. But what else? And the Bible goes on and says in verse uh, 23, Save others by snatching them out of fire. To others show mercy with fear. 
hating even the garment stained by flesh. In other words, the warning here is do all you can to rescue your brother or sister out of sin, but don't be pulled into their sin, right? Now, how can you be pulled into sin when you're helping rescue someone else out of their sin? Um, I think before this sermon series on 2nd and 3rd John, I would have told you, don't be pulled into their sin specifically, which is true, right? Like, uh, I've never known anyone to do this, but an extreme hypothetical situation would be the guy who goes to, for instance, a strip club and says, I'm just sharing the gospel with him. No, that's, that's dumb, right? I think we can all recognize that, right? But, but there are scenarios where in, in our effort to rescue them from sin, we're actually leading ourselves into temptation, right? And we have to watch that. We have to be watching out diligently that we do not ourselves get pulled into sin. That is a good warning. But as I did this study, I realized that there's actually more to it than that. There is that. But do you guys remember the point of 2 John, right? The point of 2 John was, do not show hospitality to these heretics because when you show hospitality to them, you're actually joining them in their work. In other words, there is a time as a Christian to withhold hospitality because by showing hospitality, you actually support their work. You may say it's just out of kindness or compassion, but no, you're actually joining them in the evil that they do. And so one of the ways we do this is when we don't actually treat sin seriously, when we don't have those tough conversations, when we, out of our eagerness to seem caring and compassionate, to ease someone from pain, right? That's, that's one of the things we want as Christians. We, we help ease each other's burden. We help soothe each other's pain. That is true. But what about when that pain is caused by their own actions that they're still continuing it? You see, when we rush too quickly in to support someone and we end up supporting their bad habits, their sins, in other words, enabling them, we're not actually loving them. We're actually not even easing their pain. Yes, in the short term, but in the long run, we're causing them more pain. When we, through what we call kindness, out of our own self-deception, enable someone to sin, we're not actually being kind. And it is what I said in the beginning. It's not so much that we're loving that person, we're loving how that person thinks of us more than we actually love them. And this is a hard thing, right? So we want, as Christians, to be loving and compassionate and to care for people, to ease their burdens, to soothe their pain, but we need to do so in truth. If what we're doing is actually enabling their sin and leading to their destruction, don't do it. Out of love for them, don't do it. In other words, do all you can to help rescue someone from sin, but don't fall into sin yourself. And so that's where we're at. So what do we do with all this information? I just want to say this whole thing one more time because even though it's one paragraph, it's so cool. So we build each other up. We do that by building each other up in the true faith. In other words, we disciple one another. We do that as we pray for each other. We do that as we stay in the true gospel and we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. 
And when we do that, we know that we do it in a true hope that we can be confident in it. And so rescue other people from sin. Avoid sin yourself. Disciple and pray. Disciple and pray. It's simple, but these are the means that God has given us. And when we do that, we will see God's Spirit work in rescuing others from sin and in building up His body. So with that, I want to close us out in prayer. Uh, and we'll finish worship with a, with a song. So. Father, I pray that we would take your words from Jude seriously, that we would take sin in our lives seriously, that we would flee from it so that we can find joy and peace and freedom in your Son. I pray that we would help rescue others from sins as we disciple for them, that we disciple them and we pray for them. And I pray that we do this while we stay centered in the gospel, waiting for you to complete the work. In Jesus' name, amen.